Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming, joining us here for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. We're excited that you are here. I want to thank Pastor Dave for pinch hitting for me last week as me following my minor hand surgery. Everything's going well, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm also grateful to be back here and be able to to open God's Word and us be able to study it together this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to Psalms. Once again, to the Psalms of the Ascent. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 129, 130, and 131. We're going to look at those three Psalms this morning. We're also going to observe the Lord's Supper, as you may also have been aware. And we're going to do that today because I think it's an appropriate thing for the people of God who gather together, especially the Sunday before Thanksgiving. I just think it's an appropriate time for the people of God to, to, to come together and to be able to, uh, be able to observe the Lord's Supper and to remind ourselves of that which we ought to be most thankful for, and that is the redemption that we have for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it's exciting that we can do that this morning as well. So let's get right to it. I want, I want to, before I read these three psalms to you this morning, though, I want to give you some, some thoughts, some things that you can think through as we work our way through them. Uh, with regard to some things that we ought to be thankful for. And I think there's, there's really kind of three headings, if I could put them over these psalms, that we might think through as we're reading them this morning. It may be helpful. The first one is that we have a, song, a testimony of survival. We have a testimony of survival, and that is followed by a, a cry of forgiveness. And then that cry of forgiveness is then followed finally by a declaration of trust. And those three things really will kind of mark our way as we journey through these three psalms this morning. And so with that as sort of an introduction, let's hear them, uh, hear the words of God this morning. Psalm 129, a song of victory over Zion's enemies, a song of ascents. Many a time they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed my on my back. They made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hands, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Psalm 130, waiting for the redemption of the Lord, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But... There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 131. Simple trust in the Lord. A song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. 
Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us so much about ourselves. Thank you for the encouragement that we find in it. And I pray today that you would help us to concentrate our attention on your holy word and allow it to transform our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin looking at Psalm 129, if, if, if we're not careful, when we first read Psalm 129, we might initially think that this is a, a personal psalm. After all, the very first line includes the word me and my in it. It says, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth. But then the psalmist follows that up with a call for all of Israel to repeat that same thing. And when he does that, what that allows us to recognize is that the psalmist in his personal testimony is actually identifying himself with corporate Israel. And so consequently, what we have in this psalm is not so much a personal testimony as much as it is a corporate testimony that, that summarizes really Israel's history for many hundreds of years. And in many respects, what we have is a sad and troubling testimony of suffering and affliction. In fact, note the severity of Israel's affliction as the psalmist describes it. The psalmist says that it happened often. He says, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth. And that word, those words, many a time, some of your translations, you'll see the word greatly there, talking about the severity of it. This was not something that just happened periodically. It was not some trivial kind of affliction that, that happened upon Israel. It was something that happened repeatedly over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, he says that this has happened from my youth. It's something that, that from the time that Israel was, a, was, was very young, it was a nation that had experienced trouble. Not only was it severe, though, it was also personal. The psalmist uses the pro, personal pronoun they, which indicates that he was not just talking about some natural disaster that had affected Israel. It was not some unfortunate set of circumstances that affected Israel. No, he is, it has in view here personal attacks and persecutions of people who had intended to carry out these attacks. So the affliction that he discusses, it's severe, it's personal, but it's also brutal. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 paints one of the most graphic pictures of suffering and misery that you'll find. He says, the plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. As Walt Kaiser has written, he says, one can sort of visualize the plowman just throwing his weight from right to left as the oxen pull it along the, the furrowed ground. And that is the image that the, the psalmist gives us of those who are afflicting Israel. They are just putting their full weight into the plow as it makes its furrow along the back of this nation. Such imagery brings to mind the torture and really the horror that Israel had experienced throughout her history. Her affliction had been severe. It had been personal, and it was also brutal. But I hope you notice that right in the middle of that description, of that very horrible testimony, comes this affirmation. There at the end of verse 2, 
that Israel, though what it had experienced was horrible, though it was, though her enemies had, had sought to defeat her, they had not been successful. In verse 2 it says, yet they have not prevailed against me. They had tried everything. They had done all that they could to defeat her, but her defeat had not come. She may have been knocked down, but she was able to always regain her footing and her, her strength again. And verse 4 tells us why. Verse 4 tells us that the psalmist says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. So what we immediately recognize is that Israel had regained her footing and she had come back from all of the assaults against her, not because she was so ingenious, not because she was so strong, not because she was so uh, had elastic within her that allowed her to pull back into the same form that she had been before. No, her success had come because God had stepped in and had done for her what she could not do for herself. The covenant-keeping God of Israel had cut the cords of the wicked, the psalmist says. And here, here is where we see is that the, the same imagery of the plowman behind the plow. Suddenly, what it talks about there is he had cut those cords that, that held the plow to the oxen. And so consequently, as the oxen pull, they're no longer pulling the plows. God cut those cords. He's the one that stopped the misery from taking place. Such imagery tells us that the covenant-keeping God of Israel had set His people free. And the effective testimony of the psalmist and of the nation of Israel is that no enemy or foe can ever prevail against those who belong to the Lord. You see, He's the one who cuts the cords of the wicked and He releases them from bondage. And brothers and sisters, that is something that we ought to be thankful for. If we belong to Him, no foe or enemy will ever overpower us permanently because God, God is a sovereign God who is in control. Now that's really the first half of the psalm. The second half of the psalm takes up really the other side of that same argument. Because you see, the righteous Lord who defends and who delivers His own can also be counted on to defeat His enemies. In fact, that's what the psalmist prays for. He says, let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up. In other words, he says, something with no roots in it. Just let it be, be grass that's worthless so that it never gets used for anything. It's just, it, it, just it, it withers away. In fact, he goes on at the very end of the, the psalm and prays for this. He says, don't even let people who pass by say God bless you to these people. Don't even let them say, may the peace of God rest upon you. In effect, the psalmist prays that God will put Israel's tormentors to shame. Now, this is hard language for some people. They have a hard time with psalms such as this. This, is, this falls under the heading of what, what many would call the imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament. These are psalms in which the psalmist, when he writes them, pleads for or prays for something that we would think initially would be, well, that, that sounds awful to pray for something like that to take place for someone else. That sounds bad for, for someone to write something along those lines. And yet understand this, the psalmist's prayer is, is directed toward those who hate Zion, which is a way of describing those people who align themselves in opposition to the righteous Lord. He prays that those people would ultimately be defeated. 
understand this. When the psalm writes what he does, he's not writing with revenge in mind, wanting someone to be, to be defeated because of what they had done to him. No, he writes with a holy vengeance in mind, the vengeance of a holy and righteous God who will one day defeat all of his enemies and turn everything into the righteous things that he desired for them to be. This is very similar to what David writes in Psalm 68. Psalm 68, David says this. You may be familiar with this passage. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. And then David says this. As smoke driven away is driven away, so drive them away. We've all been kind of praying for that smoke to be driven away over the last few days here in this, in this part of the country, haven't we? When those... When those those winds have been blowing that smoke down upon us. We've been praying, God, blow that smoke away. And beautifully, we got up this morning and it has been blown away. That's the same imagery that David prays for. Let the smoke, let them be a smoke that gets blown away. Here in Psalm 129, let them be as the grass that just grows up and dies. So Psalm 129 is a testimony of survival. And what we learn from it that helps us keep an eye toward what we should be thankful for is the first point that I want you to see on your outline. And the first point is this. Though opposition and persecution will come, the righteous Lord can be counted on to defend and deliver those who trust in Him and defeat those who do not. That's really what the first, this first psalm in our group of three this morning tells us. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know it's something that we can be thankful for. We can be thankful that God is righteous. We can be thankful that He is faithful and that we who belong to Him can rest in the confidence that though we may face trouble, God will defend and deliver us and that He will ultimately be victorious over all of those who oppose Him. Now that's Psalm 129. Let's look at Psalm 130. Let's focus our attention there. This psalm, interestingly enough, has been noted to be one of the most... Uh, it should have been included in the psalm of ascents. And here's the reason why. Because this psalm starts out at the lowest point that one can be at. He says, out of the depths do I cry to you. It starts at a very low place and then it begins to take a trajectory that it begins to rise. The entire psalm just keeps talking about how good God is and it ends with elation. It ends with, with sheer joy because it, it, though it started in the pits, it started in the depths. It ends at the top of the mountain. As a matter of fact, if Stephen Newley has written, it is a psalm that leads us from cr the crushing depths of man's depravity to the, to the soaring heights of God's mercy. The psalmist writes, as I said, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. What are the depths? I doubt many of us in here could, could not have a testimony that spoke of us being in the depths. We talk about, you know, we're being in the pits at times. Understand this, though. What the psalmist is talking about here is not talking about the depths of, of depression. He's not really talking about the depths that is brought about by, by anxiety and those kind of things. And there's, that, that is certainly a legitimate and a, and, a, and a legitimate way of understanding the depths. But really, what the psalmist is talking about here is the depths that come, that we find ourselves in when we recognize that we are sinners who are eternally separated from a holy and righteous God. The depths that he describes here are the, are the, speaks of the waves of God's displeasure toward the psalmist's sins. The depths really are a metaphor for adversity and trouble that comes into our lives as a result of our sin. It's a metaphor for understanding that, that we are separated and alienated from God. And it is that realization that 
our sin hangs over us to the point that it drives us into the deep despair of knowing that there's nothing that we could ever do to get ourselves out of it that drives the psalmist to cry out to the only help that there is. He cries out to the Lord. It is the knowledge that his sin is too heavy for him to bear on his own that causes him to plead to God for mercy. In fact, this is what he cries out. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The word supplications there in the New King James even is better translated in many of your versions as pleas for mercy. And that really is what it is. And friend, understand this. When you plead for mercy, when you plead for God's mercy regarding your sin, that plea does not have built within it an attempt to justify what you've done. A true pleading of mercy does not minimize or trivialize your sin. You aren't trying to bargain with God. You aren't trying to excuse your sin that is based upon your set of circumstances. And Lord, you know that I would have never done this if this had not happened. That's not a true plea for mercy. No, the supplications that the psalmist talks about here is a plea from a heart that knows the weight of sin that hangs over him or her is too heavy and all they can do is say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm reminded of the story in Luke 18. Jesus tells of the, 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 the Pharisee and the tax collector who just happened to meet one another as they go into the temple to pray. And the the, the Pharisee goes in and, and the Bible says that he, he, does it, he looks around and sees who all's around him and that just lets him take the forefront and he lifts his head and he lifts his voice to God and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all of these other people that are in this room today. Jesus said on the other side, there's the tax collector who stood at a distance, beat his breast, hung his head, refused to even look up and out of his mouth came this prayer. Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus said the two men walked away from the temple that day with only one of them being justified. And the one that was justified was the tax collector sinner. Why? Because the Bible says that God resists the proud like the Pharisee who refuses to acknowledge his sin, who wants to justify his sin, who, who wants to compare his sin to others, that God rejects him and casts him down, but that he lifts up and gives grace and he gives mercy to the humble, like the tax-collecting sinner who admits his sin and confesses it to him. And really, that's what we see next in this psalm. Because the psalmist goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, <laughs> O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I want you to take this thought and I want you to consider it this week as we lead up to Thanksgiving, as we sit around with our families and as we enjoy these meals and we spend time thinking about all the, the wonderful things that God's blessed us with. I want you to think about this. Were it not for the fact that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, if it were not for that attribute of God, where would you and I be? 
If God put a check mark beside our name every time we had a foul thought, every time a foul word came out of our mouths, every time that we did something that is not within the will of God, every time we broke one of His commandments, every time we broke a law of the government, if God kept those check marks and listed them after our name and not only kept record of them, but stored up all of the wrath that was due each one of those so that He could pour out that wrath upon us, which we justly deserve, if that was what we were waiting on and we knew that that was the kind of God that we serve, then let me ask you this, who of us, who of us could stand this morning and say, I think I'm going to be in good shape? Not a one of us. There's no room for any of us to stand that way. And at this time of Thanksgiving, the reason why we can be most thankful in our lives is because that is not the Lord's nature. Instead, with Him, the psalmist says, there is forgiveness. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 tells us this. It says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. Here is the absolute best news that I could ever tell anyone. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. You may be sitting there going, I, 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 don't, I can't get my mind around that. Listen, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how deep you've gone. It doesn't matter how long ago it was or how recent. It doesn't matter how big you think it is that will keep you from God's mercy. The Bible, the gospel says that those who humble themselves before a just and mighty God will receive mercy. And you may think that's just too good to be true. It is too good to be true except for the fact that it is true. Understand this. That is why God the Father sent Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, down to this earth to be stretched out and crucified on a Roman cross because it was there that He assumed upon Himself all of the sins and all of the wickedness and all of the punishment that God handed out towards sinners who will by faith trust in Him and place their faith in Him. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ took our place, died the death that we deserve to die so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And if there's any other thing that we want to be thankful for this week, I want you to know there's nothing that tops that. That's why he says that we are to fear him. Does fear, does he mean that we're to cower in the corner and, and, and cover ourselves up because we're scared of God? No, that's not what that fear means. What he does mean by fear is that there is a reverence and there's an awe and there's a respect that comes as a result of our forgiveness because we realize of all the people in the world who want to know God and understand Him and reverence Him, those of us who have been forgiven of so much ought to be the first in line. Being forgiven of sins does not give us a license to just go out and live any way we want to live. Given, being forgiven of sins does not give us the get-out-of-jail-free card that allows us to just do whatever we want to do. No, being forgiven of sins drives us to our knees before a holy God and a desire then to live obedient lives because of all that He has forgiven us of. Verses 5 and 6 of this psalm pushes us even farther because he says there that he's waiting. Three times in those two verses, he says, I wait upon the Lord. I, I wait on Him. I'm waiting. What's He waiting on? Is He waiting for that forgiveness to come? Is He, is he waiting? 
You know, is he sitting around on pins and needles just kind of hoping that God won't change his mind? He, he's waiting on God to go through all the necessary paperwork, dot all the I's and cross the T's before he finally issues that forgiveness pardon decree? No, it's not what he's waiting on. As James Montgomery Boyce has written, the psalmist is waiting on God himself. It is, it is God whom he has offended by his sin, and it is fellowship with God that has been broken and needs to be restored. Friend, I want you to understand, if you're here this morning and you just do not feel very close to God, you feel as if there's a great distance and a chasm between you, perhaps it is, is because there needs to begin some time of confession and humility with God, confessing your sins before Him. Because what accompanies that confession of sin is the restoration of fellowship. Because the fellowship is, 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 is eroded because of sin. And so the psalmist is waiting for that restoration of fellowship. In the last two verses of this psalm, the psalmist announces that what he's experienced personally is available to any. To all of Israel, he says. And it, we can extrapolate that and understand that it's available to us as well. All who will, who will humble themselves and plead for his mercy will receive it and receive abundant redemption. That's what he says in verse 7. That word abundant and plentiful or, or full and overflowing redemption it's what, it's what one has said, it's the amount, it's, it's the fact that the Lord will pay everything we owe. Walt Kaiser has written this. He says, the amount that the Lord pays is enough to dismiss forever all charges against us. Friend, when you begin to think about that, that through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through His death on the cross, He offers forgiveness of sins not just those that we've done in the past, but forgiveness of sins for all of our debts that we have incurred against Him. Past, present, and future, we stand before God justified not because we live perfect lives. We stand before God justified because of what Jesus did for us and our faith in Him. So verse 8 says that we can expect redemption from all of our sin. As I said earlier, there's no greater news that I could ever announce to anyone other than the fact that God is a forgiving God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And in this psalm, we find a reason to be thankful because it is a cry for forgiveness that is met with a promise to do so. It leads me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. The second point is this. Though plunged into the depths of hopelessness by our sin, those who cry out to the Lord for mercy will receive pardon and restoration. That's the gospel. It's available to all who will, who will do that. Now, I find Psalm 131 to be an appropriate psalm to follow Psalm 130. Not just because the number 131 follows 130, but I find it to be appropriate because of the subject matter of Psalm 131. Because in Psalm 131, we find the subject matter of, of pride and humility which goes just perfect with what we've just looked at in Psalm 130. And this is a psalm of David. And in this, in this is a very clear, it's a very short psalm, very easy to read. But nevertheless, as one writer has put it, it is, though it's the, one of the easiest of all psalms to read, its lesson is one of the hardest to learn. I think it's worth noting that David wrote it. David is the giant slaying great king of Israel, man after God's own heart. I can only imagine that for David, it had to be a little bit difficult to go through life and not be affected by pride. 
to not be affected by the fact that he was, he was the guy who was on point pretty much when God wanted many things to be done in the life of Israel. It had to be something that was a challenge to him. And yet he's the same one who wrote these words. Lord, my heart is not haughty. It's not lifted up. My eyes are not lofty. They're not raised too high. Neither do I concern myself, myself with great matters nor with things too profound or too marvelous for me. David wrote those words. I love what the Expositor's Bible Commentary has written about this passage. It says this, it's that the proud person looks, compares, competes, and is never content. He plans and schemes in his heart to how he can outdo and perform. I can't help but think that David was plagued by that to some degree. That that had to be in the back of his mind at different points. And yet he struggled with it and began and it's able to write this message of this psalm which tells us that learning to subdue pride is the most important of all lessons for, in, in Christian character since pride is the most serious and pervasive of all vices. David describes having moved past pride and arrogance and, and vain ambition to the place where his soul is calm and is quieted. The metaphor that he uses there is of a weaned child at the breast of his mother. Calm, quiet. As the father of four children, I have watched that weaning process firsthand four different times. And I've watched Caroline wean all four of our children. And I can assure you, and I'm sure that there are many mothers in this room who can attest to this fact, that that is not an easy process for the child or for the mother. As one has written, weaning is often the child's first experience of loss. It's life's first lesson in self-denial and self-control. It is one of the first times that we realize that we are not always going to get our own way. And then the writer finishes this way, and what a fuss some of us raise before we learn the lesson. You know what that tells me? That tells me that learning to overcome pride and arrogance and selfish ambition it's a hard battle. It's a hard issue to become quieted and calm, to be okay and be comfortable with whatever God sends our way. That is something that is not easy for Christians to learn and to accept. Nevertheless, we must learn to quiet our souls in the Lord, just as David describes. We must learn to be content with all that God has given to us. That doesn't mean that we just give up. It doesn't mean that we don't aspire to do greater things. It doesn't mean that we don't further our education or do to try to apply for a new job. That's not the point. The point is simply this. It does mean that we are to be content with what God gives us and we are to trust His will and we're to trust His plan and we're to trust His time. All too often, however, we want things on our own terms. We want things on our own timing. But David says that our heart is not to be haughty or prideful. Our eyes are not to be raised up or looking past that which he gives us to oversee. And while we may aspire to great things, our aspirations must not degenerate into selfish ambitions. Instead, our hope is to be in the Lord. Our confidence is to be in his will. Trusting God's plan, trusting his timing, that is what allows us to live life with a calm and quieted soul like a weaned child sitting in his mama's lap. And so this is why I've labeled this psalm a declaration of trust. Because this declaration points us to something else that you and I can be thankful for. And it's the third point on your outline this morning. And it's this. 
though tempted by pride, arrogance, and ambition to trust in ourselves, our true hope rests in a humble confidence in the will of God. So this morning, we've looked at these three psalms, and and really, we've looked at them individually, but I believe when we kind of put them all together, they paint for us a picture, a picture that tells us what a thankful heart really ought to look like. If we look at all the individual parts of these psalms, we come back together, and I think we've got a testimony of survival, we've had a cry for forgiveness, and we've had a declaration of trust. And that picture, when it comes together, is what I would like to submit to you as my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. A thankful heart is a rescued heart convinced of God's protection. It's it's a forgiven heart assured of God's mercy. And it's a humble heart contented with God's will. Really, as believers, that should be the way that our hearts are described. Thankful hearts because we know that we've been rescued and that God has and will protect us. And we have a thankful heart because we know that we've been forgiven of our sins and we have assurance of His mercy. And we have a thankful heart because we've been, we can humbly trust God's will for our lives and be confident of His plans for us. And because we are a thankful people, that's what drives us to the Lord's table. See, we come to the Lord's table this morning because we remember that everything that we've discussed, all of the benefits that we've described that has come to us, come as a result of the fact that Jesus Christ suffered and died in our place. You see, like the psalmist of Psalm 129, we may be knocked down again and again by those who oppose us, but we are assured of ultimate victory because of what Christ has done through His death and resurrection. That's how Paul could write what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because he goes on to say, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our body. Like the psalmist of Psalm 130, we who are believers in Christ recognize that because of Christ's sacrifice for us, we too can let our voices ring out because of the forgiveness that we have experienced. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I'll bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And then, like David in Psalm 131, When you and I stop and we look at the battered and beaten body of Christ stretched out on that Roman cross, nailed, suffering in anguish, pain for the punishment of our sins, then where can there be any pride in our lives? What else can we do but humble ourselves before Him with grateful and thankful hearts as a response to the great love that He has shown for us? 